History of England, Chapter Ten, Part Twelve. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay, Chapter Ten, Part Twelve. The contest between the two branches of the legislature lasted some days longer. On Monday, the 4th of February, the peers resolved that they would insist on their amendments, but a protest to which thirty-nine names were subscribed was entered on the journals. On the following day the Tories determined to try their strength in the lower house. They mustered there in great force. A motion was made to agree to the amendments of the Lords. Those who were for the plan of Sancroft, and those who were for the plan of Danby, divided together, but they were beaten by two hundred and eighty-two votes to a hundred and fifty-one. The House then resolved to request a free conference with the Lords. At the same time strenuous efforts were making without the walls of Parliament to bring the dispute between the two branches of the legislature to a close. Burnet thought that the importance of the crisis justified him in publishing the great secret which the Princess had confided to him. He knew, he said, from her own lips, that it had long been her full determination, even if she came to the throne in the regular course of descent, to surrender her power, with the sanction of Parliament, into the hand of her husband. Danby received from her an earnest and almost angry reprimand. She was, she wrote, the Prince's wife. She had no other wish than to be subject to him. The most cruel injury that could be done to her would be to set her up as his competitor, and she never could regard any person who took such a course as her true friend. The Tories had still one hope. Anne might insist on her own rights, and on those of her children. No effort was spared to stimulate her ambition and to alarm her conscience. Her uncle Clarendon was especially active. A few weeks only had elapsed since the hope of wealth and greatness had impelled him to belie the boastful professions of his whole life, to desert the royal cause, to join with the Wildmans and Fergusons, nay, to propose that the King should be sent a prisoner to a foreign land, and immured in a fortress begirt by pestilential marshes. The lure which had produced this strange transformation was the Viceroyalty of Ireland. Soon, however, it appeared that the proselyte had little chance of obtaining the splendid prize on which his heart was set. He found that others were consulted on Irish affairs. His advice was never asked, and, when obtrusively and importunately offered, was coldly received. He repaired many times to St. James's Palace but could scarcely obtain a word or a look. One day the Prince was writing, another day he wanted fresh air and must ride in the park, on a third he was closeted with the officers on military business and could see nobody. Clarendon saw that he was not likely to gain anything by the sacrifice of his principles, and determined to take them back again. In December ambition had converted him into a rebel, in January disappointment reconverted him into a royalist. The uneasy consciousness that he had not been a consistent Tory gave a peculiar acrimony to his Toryism. In the House of Lords he had done all in his power to prevent a settlement. He 
he now exerted, for the same end, all his influence over the Princess Anne. But his influence over her was small indeed when compared with that of the Churchills, who wisely called to their help two powerful allies, Tillotson, who was a spiritual director, had at that time immense authority, and Lady Russell, whose noble and gentle virtues, proved by the most cruel of all trials, had gained for her the reputation of a saint. The Princess of Denmark, it was soon known, was willing that William should reign for life, and it was evident that to defend the cause of the daughters of James against themselves was a hopeless task. And now William thought that the time had come when he ought to explain himself. He accordingly sent for Halifax, Danby, Shrewsbury, and some other political leaders of great note, and, with that air of stoical apathy under which he had from a boy been in the habit of concealing his strongest emotions, addressed to them a few deeply meditated and weighty words. He had hitherto, he said, remained silent. He had used neither solicitation nor menace. He had not even suffered a hint of his opinions or wishes to get abroad, but a crisis had now arrived at which it was necessary for him to declare his intentions. He had no right and no wish to dictate to the Convention. All that he claimed was the privilege of declining any office which he felt that he could not hold with honour to himself and with benefit to the public. A strong party was for a regency. It was for the Houses to determine whether such an arrangement would be for the interest of the nation. He had a decided opinion on that point, and he thought it right to say distinctly that he would not be regent. Another party was for placing the princess on the throne, and for giving to him during her life the title of king, and such a share in the administration as she might be pleased to allow him. He could not stoop to such a post. He esteemed the princess as much as it was possible for man to esteem woman, but not even from her would he accept a subordinate and a precarious place in the government. He was so made that he could not submit to be tied to the apron-strings even of the best of wives. He did not desire to take any part in English affairs, but if he did consent to take a part, there was one part only which he could usefully or honourably take. If the estates offered him the crown for life, he would accept it. If not, he should, without repining, return to his native country. He concluded by saying that he thought it reasonable that the Lady Anne and her posterity should be preferred in the succession to any children whom he might have by any other wife than the Lady Mary. The meeting broke up, and what the Prince had said was in a few hours known all over London. That he must be King was now clear. The only question was whether he should hold the regal dignity alone or conjointly with the princess. Halifax and a few other politicians who saw in a strong light the danger of dividing the supreme executive authority thought it desirable that, during William's life, Mary should be only queen consort and a subject. But this arrangement, though much might doubtless be said for it in argument, shocked the general feeling even of those Englishmen who were most attached to the prince. His wife had given an unprecedented proof of conjugal submission and affection, and the very least return that could be made to her would be to bestow on her the dignity of Queen Regnant. 
William Herbert, one of the most zealous of the Prince's adherents, was so much exasperated that he sprang out of the bed to which he was confined by gout, and vehemently declared that he would never have drawn a sword in His Highness's cause if he had foreseen that so shameful an arrangement would be made. No person took the matter up so eagerly as Burnet. His blood boiled at the wrong done to his kind patroness. He expostulated vehemently with Bentinck, and begged to be permitted to resign the chaplainship. "'While I am His Highness's servant,' said the brave and honest divine, "'it would be unseemly in me to oppose any plan which may have his countenance. I therefore desire to be set free, that I may fight the princess's battle with every faculty that God has given me.' Bentinck prevailed on Burnet to defer an open declaration of hostilities till William's resolution should be distinctly known. In a few hours the scheme which had excited so much resentment was entirely given up, and all those who considered James as no longer king were agreed as to the way in which the throne must be filled. William and Mary must be king and queen. The heads of both must appear together on the coin, writs must run in the names of both, both must enjoy all the personal dignities and immunities of royalty, but the administration, which could not be safely divided, must belong to William alone. And now the time arrived for the free conference between the houses. The managers for the lords, in their robes, took their seats along one side of the table in the painted chamber, but the crowd of members of the House of Commons on the other side was so great that the gentlemen who were to argue the question in vain tried to get through. It was not without much difficulty and long delay that the sergeant-at-arms was able to clear a passage. At length the discussion began. A full report of the speeches on both sides has come down to us. There are few students of history who have not taken up that report with eager curiosity, and laid it down with disappointment. The question between the houses was argued on both sides as a question of law. The objections which the Lords made to the resolution of the Commons were verbal and technical, and were met by verbal and technical answers. Summers vindicated the use of the word abdication by quotations from Grotius and Brissonius. Spigelius and Bartolus. When he was challenged to show any authority for the proposition that England could be without a sovereign, he produced the Parliament roll of the year 1399, in which it was expressly set forth that the kingly office was vacant during the interval between the resignation of Richard II and the enthroning of Henry IV. The Lords replied by producing the Parliament roll of the first year of Edward the Fourth, from which it appeared that the record of 1399 had been solemnly annulled. They therefore maintained that the precedent on which Summers relied was no longer valid. Treby then came forth to Summers's assistance, and brought forth the Parliament roll of the first year of Henry the Seventh, which repealed the act of Edward the Fourth, and consequently restored the validity of the record of 1399. After a colloquy of several hours, the disputants separated. The lords assembled in their own house. It was well understood that they were about to yield, and that the conference had been a mere form. The friends of Mary had found that, by setting her up as her husband's rival, they had deeply displeased her. Some of the peers, who had formerly voted for a regency, had determined to absent themselves, or to support the resolution of the lower house. 
Their opinion, they said, was unchanged, but any government was better than no government, and the country could not bear a prolongation of this agony of suspense. Even Nottingham, who in the Painted Chamber had taken the lead against the Commons, declared that, though his own conscience would not suffer him to give way, he was glad that the consciences of other men were less squeamish. Several lords, who had not yet voted in the Convention, had been induced to attend. Lord Lexington, who had just hurried over from the Continent, the Earl of Lincoln, who was half mad, the Earl of Carlisle, who limped in on crutches, and the Bishop of Durham, who had been in hiding, and had intended to fly beyond sea, but had received an intimation that, if he would vote for the settling of the government, his conduct in the Ecclesiastical Commission should not be remembered against him. Danby, desirous to heal the schism which he had caused, exhorted the House in a speech distinguished by even more than his usual ability, not to persevere in a contest which might be fatal to the State. He was strenuously supported by Halifax. The spirit of the opposite party was quelled. When the question was put whether King James had abdicated the government, only three lords said not content. On the question of whether the throne was vacant, a division was demanded. The contents were sixty-two, the not-contents forty-seven. It was immediately proposed, and carried without a division, that the Prince and Princess of Orange should be declared King and Queen of England. Nottingham then moved that the wording of the oaths of allegiance and supremacy should be altered in such a way that they might be conscientiously taken by persons who, like himself, disapproved of what the Convention had done, and yet fully purposed to be loyal and dutiful subjects of the new sovereigns. To this proposition no objection was made. Indeed, there can be little doubt that there was an understanding on the subject between the Whig leaders and those Tory lords whose votes had turned the scale on the last division. The new oaths were sent down to the Commons, together with the resolution that the Prince and Princess should be declared King and Queen. It was now known to whom the crown would be given. On what conditions it should be given still remained to be decided. The Commons had appointed a committee member to consider what steps it might be advisable to take, in order to secure law and liberty against the aggressions of future sovereigns, and the committee had made a report. This report recommended, first, that those great principles of the Constitution, which had been violated by the dethroned King, should be solemnly asserted, and secondly, that many new laws should be enacted, for the purpose of curbing the prerogative and purifying the administration of justice. Most of the suggestions of the committee were excellent, but it was utterly impossible that the Houses could, in a month or even in a year, deal properly with matters so numerous, so various, and so important. It was proposed, among other things, that the militia should be remodelled, that the power which the Sovereign possessed of proroguing and dissolving Parliaments should be restricted, that the duration of Parliaments should be limited, that the royal pardon should no longer be pleadable to a parliamentary impeachment, that toleration should be granted to Protestant dissenters, that the crime of high treason should be more precisely defined, that trials for high treason should be conducted in a manner more favourable to innocence, that the judges should hold their places for life, that the mode of appointing sheriffs should be altered, that juries should be nominated in such a way as might exclude partiality and corruption, that the practice of filing criminal informations in the King's bench should be abolished, that the Court of Chancery should be reformed, that the fees of public functionaries should be regulated, 
and that the law of quo warranto should be amended. It was evident that cautious and deliberate legislation on these subjects must be the work of more than one laborious session, and it was equally evident that hasty and crude legislation on subjects so grave could not but produce new grievances worse than those which it might remove. If the committee meant to give a list of the reforms which ought to be accomplished before the throne was filled, the list was absurdly long. If, on the other hand, the committee meant to give a list of all the reforms which the legislature would do well to make in proper season, the list was strangely imperfect. Indeed, as soon as the report had been read, member after member rose to suggest some addition. It was moved and carried that the selling of offices should be prohibited, that the Habeas Corpus Act should be made more efficient, and that the law of Mandamus should be revised. One gentleman fell on the chimney-men, another on the excise-men, and the House resolved that the malpractices of both chimney-men and excise-men should be restrained. It is a most remarkable circumstance that, while the whole political, military, judicial, and fiscal system of the kingdom was thus passed in review, not a single representative of the people proposed the repeal of the statute which subjected the press to a censorship. It was not yet understood, even by the most enlightened men, that the liberty of discussion is the chief safeguard of all other liberties. The House was greatly perplexed. Some orators vehemently said that too much time had already been lost, and that the government ought to be settled without the delay of a day. Society was unquiet, trade was languishing, the English colony in Ireland was in imminent danger of perishing, a foreign war was impending, the exiled king might in a few weeks be at Dublin with a French army, and from Dublin he might soon cross to Chester. Was it not insanity at such a crisis to leave the throne unfilled, and, while the very existence of parliaments was in jeopardy, to waste the time in debating whether parliaments should be prorogued by the sovereign or by themselves? On the other side, it was asked whether the Convention could think that it had fulfilled its mission by merely pulling down one prince and putting up another. Surely now or never was the time to secure public liberty by such fences as might effectually prevent the encroachments of prerogative. There was doubtless great weight in what was urged on both sides. The able chiefs of the Whig party, among whom Summers was fast rising to ascendancy, proposed a middle course. The House had, they said, two objects in view, which ought to be kept distinct. One object was to secure the old polity of the realm against illegal attacks. The other was to improve that polity by legal reforms. The former object might be attained by solemnly putting on record, in the resolution which called the new sovereigns to the throne, the claim of the English nation to its ancient franchises so that the king might hold his crown, and the people their privileges by one and the same title deed. The latter object would require a whole volume of elaborate statutes. The former object might be attained in a day, the latter scarcely in five years. As to the former object all parties were agreed, as to the latter there were innumerable varieties of opinion. No member of either House would hesitate for a moment to vote that the King could not levy taxes without the consent of Parliament. But it would be hardly possible to frame any new law of procedure in cases of high treason, which would not give rise to long debate, and be condemned by some persons as unjust to the prisoner, and by others as unjust to the Crown. 
The business of an extraordinary convention of the estates of the realm was not to do the ordinary work of parliaments, to regulate the fees of masters in chancery, and to provide against the exactions of gougers, but to put right the great machine of government. When this had been done, it would be time to inquire what improvement our institutions needed, nor would anything be risked by delay, for no sovereign who reigned merely by the choice of the nation could long refuse his assent to any improvement which the nation, speaking through its representatives, demanded. On these grounds the Commons wisely determined to postpone all reforms till the ancient constitution of the kingdom should have been restored in all its parts, and forthwith to fill the throne without imposing on William and Mary any other obligation than that of governing according to the existing laws of England. In order that the questions which had been in dispute between the Stuarts and the nation might never again be stirred, it was determined that the instrument by which the Prince and Princess of Orange were called to the throne, and by which the order of succession was settled, should set forth, in the most distinct and solemn manner, the fundamental principles of the Constitution. The instrument known by the name of the Declaration of Right was prepared by a committee of which Summers was chairman. The fact that the low-born young barrister was appointed to so honourable and important a post in a Parliament filled with able and experienced men, only ten days after he had spoken in the House of Commons for the first time, sufficiently proves the superiority of his abilities. In a few hours the declaration was framed and approved by the Commons. The Lords assented to it, with some amendments, of no great importance. End of part 12